Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I have a question for you. Are you a musician with so much music to practice that you struggle to even know where to start? The Gold Method app can help. Between the Etude program and the brand new Fundamentals program, the app has you covered for virtually all of your practice organization needs. If you're ready to have the peace of mind of a structured plan, head on over to ryanbeachtrumpet.com or click the link in the description of this episode. Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm really excited to share this episode with Andy. Uh, he and I have been friends for a long time, and I feel like we have a really good rapport. So this episode is, uh, I would say, kind of familial, uh, and we're just kind of talking back and forth about some things that we care about. And uh, I hope that this conversation is interesting for you as well. Before we get into the episode, I just want to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. As musicians, it's simply a fact we will be spending a significant portion of our lives with our instruments. Unfortunately, many of us can feel stuck with a bad fit, fighting to get the sound that we want. If you and your instrument aren't getting along right now, Houghton Horns can help. They have an incredible selection of brass instrument makers in stock, including Adams, Bach, and Conselmer, Eastman and Shires, Engelbert Schmid, Paxman, Tyne, Yamaha, and more. They even have vintage and consignment instruments available as well. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I'm here with my very good friend, Andy Stetson. He's the Associate Professor of trumpet at Texas Tech University. And he's also the senior associate director of the School of Music. That sounds like it's an administrative role. It is an administrative role. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, people often ask, like, senior associate director of what, though? And, and I don't ha always have a good answer for that because it's a lot of things. Yeah. Um, I bet it keeps you busy. Very busy. <laughs> uh, but... I, I think uh, I think I love it um, as as challenging as sometimes because you get to make a difference outside of your studio. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's the best part of teaching is making a difference all the time. And and now that it's a little more broad, that yeah, way. You know, I've had some some cool opportunities to develop some curriculum, um, change some things that way. Um, and now it's it's a few years on and seeing students, especially students who are not music majors, getting more involved. Um, it's really really a neat thing. Um, but yeah, administration. Yeah, administration. Yeah. Uh, Andy and I, we've known each other for a lot of years at this point. hes uh, I've been to his school a few times. He has played here in Alabama a few times. And so um, this is pretty exciting for me. This is episode 150. Andy, 
requested. <laughs> he requested uh, that we would do 150 together. Andy was there at the very beginning. I was, I mean, we, we were talking about trying to reminisce and figure out, like, it's hard to remember all that way back. I started in January of 2019. So this is three years later. Um, and yeah, I just remember asking Andy a bunch of questions about starting a podcast. I remember sitting around my table in the in the living or the dining room. I was making that that's not spit website, and I remember putting like the remember I put that picture of like rain on a window as like the and I was like <laughs> it's condensation, and I thought it was the coolest thing. And you're like, yeah, but like I would not look at this website. I would not do it. I won't read your blog post because I don't think it. I won't. I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think I was a little more supportive Well, you were, but it's so funny because it's like, <laughs> I thought what I was doing at this point, I thought I was like breaking ground and doing cool stuff. And you're like, yeah, I'm proud of you. But also, you're going to have to make this look like something people actually want to interact with too, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, but you're... And, and I wasn't really a skeptic. I hope people don't think I was a skeptic because I really wanted, you know, I wanted you to do it. Um, and I think that's what I remember being a little bit Annoyed is probably too strong a word, but you know we're we're hanging out and everybody it gets excited to come sub and and hang out with you, and and then all, all you're like obsessed with this idea, <laughs> you like won't like you would not stop talking about it. You're like I'm gonna, and then I remember the title was kind of this this little this little thing. You're like I'm gonna call it that's not spit, it's condensation, and, and people were like that's never gonna catch on. No one's gonna <laughs> who would, and now it's like this this thing. It's 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 out there and people are. People are listening, and 150 episodes. That's like a, it's like a library. Yeah, I did. A, I have like a material. spreadsheet with all the times and stuff of like how long the episodes are, and it's like over 170 hours. It's like I've talked to people yeah. for that long. People, some people have listened to my voice for that many hours. It's crazy, <laughs> and people are gonna. I really think this will happen at some point because it's such a good. You know, there's just so much information there. And you've interviewed so many really important people. Um, and I could see, and, and maybe I'll encourage a student to do this one day, but I think someone's going to start diving into there and try to catalog this in like part of a big research project or yeah, something. Yeah, that would be, that'd be like pretty surreal, you know? Uh, I'm going to read, you wrote the very first review. <laughs> so we're going to read it. This is on iTunes. Um, the title is, I can't read the whole thing, but the title of the podcast is listen to this podcast. And then there's, but you still, and I can't, I can't click on it. And it says two episodes in and I'm hooked. Amazing introductory material, closing themes and world famous guests. The host has the kind of voice that makes you feel warm inside. Comfortable, safe, not at all threatening. <laughs> If you happen to be a trumpet player, this content is first rate. If you're not a trumpet player, it's like third or fourth rate, probably. <laughs> you can learn a lot if you get past the distraction of the super high production value. Gosh, I just remember like, it's so funny back then to me because I remember feeling like, I just remember thinking everything was a big deal, right? Like things are a big deal now, but I'm much more used to like how the flow is, you know? So like I remember yeah. releasing episodes and like looking at the reviews like on a regular basis and like people wouldn't write a review for like six months and I'd just be like, no one likes my podcast. You know what I mean? It's just, I used to I used to hang on the metrics and the likes and that kind of thing so much more because it's like all I had, you know? I rarely got feedback. 
Yeah, I'm, it's really neat too to see because this everybody kind of got thrust into this a year after you were started. And so I think a lot of people jumped in to, to look at what you were doing. But I remember leaving the equipment you had, you know, at first it was like a USB yeah. microphone. And, but I, I want to go back to the, the intro music because I, I don't, I, you had some, I know someone made it for you, but I remember everybody thought that that was your voice <laughs> sing, singing along because it was so you. Yeah, it's not, it wasn't made for me. Um, th- so our former principal bass player in the Alabama Symphony Orchestra, his name is Dan Carson. He and his brothers created this track just for fun called Glam Cheese, right? And it's <laughs> them doing like the vibrato and the singing and it's Dan's voice in the opening. And, you know, like you need a theme song. You need something, right? And I don't know, I cannot tell you to this day like what made me be like, this should be the theme song of my podcast. It's so random. But if for whatever reason at that moment, I was like, this this is grooving. I'm digging it. Somehow the outro is just like the coolest outro of any podcast because it's got that killer improvised uh, keyboard solo, you know? It's like, I, it, it's better than it has any right to be if I had, if I was like trying to find music for it. But I just was, it just seemed like it fit. And it's it's like now that's what it is. Yeah, that, it, you know, it, it felt like you to, to I mean, I guess I, I knew you pretty well by then a little bit because you had lived in my house for a weekend at yeah. least. Um, in, you know, I remember you played some pop music on our piano, <laughs> you know, and sang, sang, sang these ridiculous invented songs. So it felt, it felt really, okay, that, that definitely fits. And I think that's part of why, I mean, 150 episodes in and you're, you know, you're 100% authentic. I think that's part of why uh, people enjoy it. Um, it's your, you know, you're you. You're not trying to turn into a radio host, you know, like so many of these podcasts where everybody's, you know, trying to turn it. I don't know who their favorite NPR hosts yeah. are or whoever, but they <laughs> turn into that. Um, you're just asking questions from your perspective and, um, you know, being being yourself, which probably is why it's taken off. Yeah, there was a period of time sort of in the back half of the first year bleeding into the second year where I was trying to be Joe Rogan. Like I got away from like, let's have some sort of a structure. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to figure out how to facilitate a a two-hour conversation, just stream of consciousness. And like, I just think my podcast, I think that period was like pretty good. Um, But it like, it could, I have more structure to the, to the way I'm presenting it now. You know what I mean? It's like, that's the only time I ever tried to be something that I felt like I was trying to copy something else or, you know, because I thought that that was the way a podcast should be. I was like, Joe Rogan, that's like well, the first podcast first podcast I heard. So I was like, yeah. I want it to be that style, but I've sort of fell into not that being my style, I think. Well, you should jump into more controversy then. That's kind of, I mean, just so many things are not, like I'm just trying to provide information that will help someone in their music career. <laughs> you know, like it's not, I don't see as many controversies on like, I mean, I guess there are like dogmatic views on how you should practice certain things or how you should go about this or what's the best that. But um, it seems like there's a lot of other things to cover and per- just getting to know people that, I don't know. Well, maybe you are controversial. Maybe the title is, you know, the big controversy. Because maybe some people still think it's spit. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's, I just started <laughs> off <laughs> controversial. And so maybe like every episode now, just start. <laughs> it's, no, really. I remember... No, I, th- I was going to say, I remember coming up I was, with the name. I remember I was sitting with Kathleen 
this is exactly how we came up with it. We were like, what do we call this thing? I'm not going to call it the Ryan Beach show or something like that. Like, I can't do that. I'm not, I can't really, it's the same thing with the gold method. I couldn't be like the beach method. That just felt, I felt like, like I was throwing up as I was saying it. And so Kathleen was like, what if you called it? Honestly, one of the things she said was like, what if you called it like trumpets, trumpetry, you know, trumpets, trumpeting and Trump, whatever. It's like that <laughs> Facebook group, you know? Yeah. And I was like, ah, oh, maybe. And then I was like, what about that's not spit, it's condensation. She's like, that's pretty good. And then we kept trying to think of names. And then like 10 minutes later, I was like, I think it's going to be that's not spit. You know, I just was like, I feel like that's it. I can't really move past that name. It just felt like that should be the name of the podcast. You know, it's. I, I feel like, again, with the same thing with the theme music, like there are examples, I'm sure, of people who really like brainstorm to try to figure these things out. But a few of these things, it just seems like I stumbled into the thing that I was like, that seems good enough for me. And then it just became yeah. a thing because that's just what it was. It, maybe that's how everything works. You know, maybe every real important brand or name that we know that sounded like, oh, that, of course that works. Yeah. It's, it's all just because it's a quality thing. And then we end up, it's, you know, the, the, the brand or the name becomes this ubiquitous part of it. Because I really remember at the, at the beginning, you know, oh, we'll call it That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I had two thoughts. I was like, that's dumb. <laughs> and it's way too yeah. long. Because people are just going to call it That's Not Spit. And then I remember the your URL. We had a little conversation of it. We're like, that's not pit. Yeah, yeah. It looked like snot. <laughs> you are, it, it could be a lot of things. Yeah. So, it, But now, you know, once people, because it becomes part of like a little cultural thing in our little trumpet culture, cultural part of the world. Now, I mean, people talk about it. You know, students come in and they call, you know, have you, did you hear that's not spit? And then I'm like, another one already? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's been another thing too, I suppose, is like, you know, you're told when you're first starting something that one of the most, or you're not told, but you just see in the ether, right? When you're trying to figure out how many should I release? Like, what should I do? You're told that whatever you do, you need to be consistent at it, right? That's all that matters. You just got to do it because your audience is like, they're going to expect that and you'll make their life worse if you don't, if you don't release on the day you say you're going to release. And so it's, I recognize now that's insane, but like I, it's been a self-imposed thing. And since I have not, I missed only one week since, Ag, Ag, sorry, April of 2019. I've missed only one week of weekly uploads, which is like, it's crazy because I'm sure people are like, oh, the next that's that spit is out or whatever, right? But for me, it's like, oh no, I have to think of a new episode every single week and it just doesn't stop. Like that's, I think, but that that's what I think at least maybe now it's not as essential, but I think that's what got you off the ground at, at the beginning. Yeah. Cause it started it started being something people could get notified of, see it there. And is that now I think people are probably even I mean, do you see this? Do you see people listening to older episodes? Yeah. Going back I do into the catalog. Yeah. Like the the statistics will be like, I'll see how many people listen to the most recent view, and then I'll see how many people have listened like that week. And the number who have listened that week is always higher than the amount of that one that just came out. So they're listening to other episodes. So what, what's your top What do episode? you think? I mean, not... Well, this one, sure, sure. obviously, is going to trump yeah. everything. I'm, I'm going to guess it, it was... Uh, yeah, of Barbara course. Butler. Like, by yeah. three, by three times as many as the next one, which is Mike Martin. 
Because yeah, well, that makes yeah. sense. It's got to be that way, since Mike was was part of her team. Yeah, but I mean, it's like, it's crazy. When that episode came out, I thought my podcast, in some ways, it was a bad thing, right? I thought my podcast had entered into a new echelon of like downloads and listens. And I was like, oh my <laughs> gosh, like, here we go. And then it just slowly went back to like where the podcast actually was, you know, over the course of like a year or whatever. So it's like almost as if everything went downhill for a little while after Barbara's because people were like, oh, like he's only going to interview Barbara once. I guess I don't have to listen anymore. Not everybody. But- Maybe you should do it. It's time for a clip show. Yeah. You got to go back on memory lane. Maybe. Pick the best advice because I think that the great part of that episode was it was, it was just conversation. And I think it was at, at least at the point, if not the longest one you have, it's the, it was the longest one mm-hmm. to date at that moment. And it was just neat because you got to like be in the room and hear, hear people talk to, hear you talk to Barbara, which I think from a trumpet player's perspective, you know, everybody wants to know what, like what's going on in that mind that makes, you know, people, people who work with her end up almost. I mean, it guaranteed, yeah. right? Um, it, it feels like that sure. in the trumpet world. And so you just you just got to be in the room and hear what's going on in that mind. That's really cool. So I think clip show, just re-release it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what. <laughs> that's actually not a bad idea. Um, you know, that would have been a great idea also for the 150th episode, the clip show. I know, you should have prepared some <laughs> clips. We could, have, we could have reminisced on yeah. all the important... But I think that's what's really neat. You have 150 episodes and basically every single one are are important pedagogues, um, people who had worked with important pedagogues and are starting up their own, you know, their own scene and their own things. Um, but you built it's really like a framework for the whole trumpet world. Mm. Like if you if you could take a transcription of everything, make a book about it, it would be a book of like this is what trumpet mm. is in 2020 and now a pandemic, which was yeah. interesting. Yeah, wow, it's interesting. It's a nice thing to say. Uh, you know, another interesting, I guess we'll talk about it here because um, like I interviewed Charlie too at that point, you know? And like, I remember Charlie in this episode, the audio got corrupted. So I'm debating on whether or not to interview it or to release it at some point. But like in this episode, I had gone to play for them to get ready for that Chicago audition that I was live streaming myself for way back then. And I was just messing around with these programming ideas like really early on, right? And I went and I played for for Barbara and Charlie and I was telling Charlie about this 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 programming. I was following this program I wrote for myself rather than just like, I'm just going to decide what to do, whatever. Following this program. And he's like, oh, this is very interesting, you know? And then in the podcast episode, that's when he chose to tell me that he thought I was really dumb for doing it the way that I did it. <laughs> He just waited until then. It's like, it's so incredible, you know, like there's such like a, like you've said, it's, it's 150 episodes. It's over the last three years of my life. And the last three years of my life has had like an, like pretty, I would say demonstrable growth as a human being. So it's like a catalog of like me and like the things I care about and when I cared about them and like the questions I was asking. It's pretty surreal to have that even for me as like a person to go back and listen and be like, who is that person who said that and like thought that, you know what I mean? Like, to hear myself three years ago, yeah. it's just weird. Yeah. Now, the, 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 I don't know why this mm. just occurred to me, but with all that content, you could make, you could you could program your voice into 
you know, one of those those voice machines. So you don't even have to be present anymore. You can program a computer <laughs> to take all of your all of the voice and your questioning and recreate new questions. I don't know why my mind I don't went think there, I, but that's I don't think I should do that. <laughs> I feel like terabytes of audio. Yeah, yeah. Someone someone could deep fake your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's just been it's been quite the journey, obviously. Um and what's interesting is like I it didn't start out this way, but I feel like having just shared so openly and like never charging or anything like that, I feel like there are people who have sent me messages that have benefited from it and to some degree almost have built like, I would say more trust and possibly mo- more, I don't want to say notoriety, but you know what I'm saying? Like people may know who I am more from my podcast than they do for my orchestra job. Yeah. Well, now I think people, like my favorite, I think my favorite episode is when you shared your audition yeah. recordings. Because that, that I think just, it made it so like, it, you know, I guess people, you know, I don't know why. It's like a secret or something. You know, people want their, you know, especially because it wasn't ultimately a successful audition. So people really don't want to like let people know about what I guess you could call failure. Mm. And you turn that into just like, no, we're going to learn from this um, and let's pick it apart and see why. But then people got to hear, you know, this behind the scenes thing of someone who's had a lot of success and, and just feel it was like totally humanized. Dude, like you were like out there naked. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, no, this is where. And, you know, this is where I think it. This is where I think the committee didn't want to go further, and I understand that. But then you also hear you just hear the moment. Um, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, yeah. I felt pretty strongly that I needed. I mean, I I think you're not supposed to do that. You know, <laughs> I don't think you're. <laughs> yeah, you probably some union somewhere is upset <laughs> yeah. with you. I don't think you're supposed to do that, but I, th- you know, especially because I had live streamed the pro a lot of the process. I just felt like there needed to be a conclusion, you know? Yeah. And I, but I learned even from, I remember being, I, I was doing that as a student. I was auditioning for a summer festival and it was a summer festival. Some of the people I studied with were, were teaching at. So they were really encouraging. Like, you know, gee, Andy, you sound really good. You're, of course you're going to get in. Don't worry. But then I send the tape and then they don't accept me. And so I was like, what? How? You just, you helped me make this tape and you told me it was good. <laughs> and, and, you know, even that episode of what you were doing kind of inspired me to think back and, and take another listen to that. You know, so now, now I guess it's 10 or 15 years later, but it's like, oh, I know exactly why I didn't get it. <laughs> like I can hear the moment. Um, and I feel terrible for putting those teachers of mine in that situation of like, you know, you helped me. You should, it should have worked. And it, it, it was all me. <laughs> it was all about, you know, I, you just you uncover it with those ears after the fact. Um, you know, I don't remember what it was. It's something about timing. I think I was playing hide in. It was, I think it was a Tanglewood audition. Mm. I'll just tell people what it was. And the tape for, like I was ignoring big chunks of rest. You know, not, not like the big multi-measure rest, but like, the, like a half note rest. Just half of it's gone. Turning him into three, four bars. You know, and just being obsessed with the fact that I could finally maybe sound good and play in yeah. tune. And then the you know, rhythm is, is just gone. Um, but yeah, that, that sort of self-exploration that you did um, in that episode. Now you're kind of encouraging everybody to do is you're, you're just having these conversations and, and talk with them. Kind of humanizes these great players and professionals in a way that make people feel really comfortable giving it their own shot. So I love it. I'm a fan. Yeah. I think it's important to do your best to like walk, you know, 
to walk the walk or to to do the things you say you do. You know, if I'm trying to preach to everybody, you should love the process, and then I'm out here hating the process. Like, you know, I'm not buying my own stuff, and it's it's interesting too because it's very easy to not. It's very easy. I, I don't remember. I feel like I've talked about this somewhere before. I don't remember, but it's really easy to like have an audition. This is a fixed versus growth mindset thing. Have an audition and yeah. then you don't do well. And then it's so easy just to to point out all of the reasons it didn't go well, except for like the how much you were prepared. You know, like that's the actual reason why you didn't do well, but it's so easy to be like, oh, well, like uh, this happened or this happened or this happened or the committee this or the committee that, or they're looking to cut people. You hear all sorts of different things. And so to try to just be like, here's what I'm going to try to learn from it is like, this is actually the point of doing it. You know, this is what Barbara talked about in her episode that people get permanently better. It's like getting better should be the, in my opinion, getting better should be the main goal of the efforts that we do. And whatever result happens is sort of a, a, a byproduct, you know? Yeah. And I think there's a human element too. So sometimes, you know, the, this self-improvement thing, you know, why, why are we, why are we, why would we do that? Like why? Why is the trumpet this thing that we all want to get better at? And I think it's important to remember too that we're at some point performing and emoting, right? And so it's about making connections with people, which that you know the stronger that connection gets, you know maybe maybe like Wi-Fi is a good example. Like you could be a you could be a pretty good player, but if you have a really crappy connection, you're not going to connect with an audience in a way that they want to. You know who wants to wait three hours to download your podcast, right? But if you have a great connection. Um, and it can it can connect immediately and quickly. Um, that's where I I, I kind of look at it that way. I made that up just now. That's not like a thing I say all the time. <laughs> but, it could use some refining, but, but I think I get it. <laughs> <laughs> but I've had those moments of like, all right, I want to get better at this, and then I get really good at it, um, and and then wonder, okay, but what was was self improvement just it? Um, and I was struck by this on the you know that masterclass mm-hmm. series. It was like all over Facebook yeah, ads, yeah. you know, paid. Pay 150 bucks for these masterclasses. Um, and it was really absurd to me to pay that much money. But their ads got to me. So at some point, mid, you know, stay at home pandemic, I was like, you know what? It's like a trial. And that's like, t- I'll, I'll pay this and see what it's like. And I, I think I watched one and then didn't watch any. And then a year went by and Yo Yo Ma had this uh, masterclass. Um, and I think it, it's actually worth it to pay for Yo Yo Ma's masterclass. Um, which you could probably you could probably pirate it now since it's out there. But his he had that kind of conundrum of like I'm the greatest cellist in the world, and I'm you know I'm I'm striving for perfection and all this stuff. And like he had the, an epiphany on stage where he realized I'm I'm none of this matters. He's like I could just get up right now and leave. Like I could just leave the stage, and I would still be the greatest cellist in the world, and no one would care. And so that, so then he took this next step of like this higher level artistry thing where he thought about his talent being something that's also in service to mm. others. And that really struck me because I think that's, that's maybe sometimes this missing link of people, particularly like, you know, I have students that run through these excerpts all the time. They're trying to perfect the excerpt. Um, and actually, this is my, this is my experience working with um, Tom Siders. He set me up. Um, I guess I set myself up because I think he was just being a good teacher. Um, but he he's in the in the Boston Symphony and he studied. Um, no, I studied with him uh, when Terry Everson was on sabbatical. So this is my doctorate, my last semester, 
Terry Everson was on a sabbatical, and I think the basically the entire Boston Symphony section took over, um, picked students. So I was working with Tom, and my first lesson, I was getting ready for the. Um, I don't remember what audition it was. So I had a recital coming up in some audition. So my first lesson, I gave him a list, and he picked like a prelim list for me, and and had me go through it. So I, I go through it. It's just, I think it was a pretty standard list. It was probably you know Pines pictures. Petrushka, that kind of thing. Uh, and I was trying to impress him. I remember this because he's, you know, he's younger. He's pretty much my age. He's in the Boston Symphony and I'm just a, a dweeb DMA student who's done nothing. So a little of me was like, I'm, I'm going to show him that I'm also very good. <laughs> and he's going to, he's really going to think about it a lot. I'm like, you know, so it, I don't know why I was in that mode, but you know, I guess when you're approaching 30 and you haven't done much, you're kind of, you're in that mode. So anyway, I played for him. And I was so determined to make it great. And it was really great. It was so good. Like I ne- like nothing wrong. Just this perfectly in tune, awesome. Like I wish that could have been my take at the audition. And then he came up to me and said, Wow, that was so great. Like you didn't miss anything. Everything was perfect. But I w- I would not vote vote for that to go through. And it it blew my mind. Like I was kind of mad at first, you know, that you know the stage is a grief. And I was like, why? You just told me it was perfect. He was like, ah, no one wants to hear that. You took zero risks. There's no music in you. You know, you might have all been a computer. And so from there on out, it became my like personal journey to just emote and like get and I think it for me became a little bit sort of left brain, right brain mm-hmm. thing. When it, when it finally happened and people were like, yes, that's it. I had no conscious involvement in what I was doing. I was like, what do you mean? I don't, I don't, that was good. I, I couldn't even be there in the moment. And then I would listen back and go, oh, okay, I get yeah. it. I don't know. I started telling that story. But yeah, I was, I think there's that element of you chase perfect, you, you perfect the thing and you get it. But then at some point, it has to become maybe driven by heart unless this, this mindful approach. And that's where I think this, the, it's hard to talk about because if, if we could quantify it, we'd probably all be, we could sell it and be millionaires or something. But I think there's something about art that you can't quantify that the great artists and the great performers have. And maybe they can't really explain it either, but they know it. Maybe we all do. The audiences know it too. You know it when you hear it. And that's what I'm maybe in chasing sometimes. But I learned that from Tom. It was a good time. He really roasted me though in that moment. <laughs> I'm sure it still felt good though. Tom's such like a a nice guy, you know. Like even a roast from him probably is just like, yeah, you're right. Well, it was, well, yeah, and he he, you know, because I remember I can see it because it was so vivid. <laughs> it's this defining moment, right? And he's on the other side of this winger practice room, one of the bigger ones. And so he's listening on the other side, and he kind of comes over and he's like standing next to me, and he's looking through the book, and he's like, yeah, oh, that's so good, and he's like remembering it. Oh yeah, that, you, oh, you nailed that. And then he's like, "Yeah, that wouldn't move on though." <laughs> it just totally lifted me up. And then like, yeah. Uh, and that's you know, I I have my you know Becca. Mm-hmm. Um, so Becca's probably my greatest fan and biggest critic. That's my wife. <laughs> she's and she's a pianist, but she would be that way too. She would listen to me play stuff that I thought was great because it just didn't have an emotional impact, and it, it therefore like didn't matter to her. So there'd be some awesome trumpet moments where I was like, that was the best trumpet playing I could have done. And she'd 
see me walk off stage and I'd see her. I'm like, yeah. And then she'd be shaking her head. No, Mm. not musical enough. Not musical enough. That's her subjective opinion though, right? Yeah, but I was hearing that a lot from people, especially close to the end of my degree. You know, I think, and I think for me, that was this missing link that made me, like it, I was unemployable, you know, because I, I just, nobody wanted to hear what I was doing, even though everyone agreed it was pretty good. The other advice I got was from Tom Hooten, who told me, um, and again, a defining moment that kind of hurt at the, at the time. <laughs> he, I had a lesson with him and was kind of like, you know, I'm always like this finalist or this almost finalist. So that was another thing that was, was kind of, like I was a committee splitter at competitions. I would hear from half the committee, they're like, absolutely voted for you. And then the other half of the committee was, who, who, are, mm-hmm. who are you? I was like, I just played five minutes ago. Uh, but Tom Hooten was like, yeah, it's hard to define. You're like this download. You, you know, you're 99% downloaded. But until that 1% gets downloaded, you can't access the video and do anything with it. I was like, ooh. Like, at the one hand, great. Thanks for telling me that I'm 99% yeah. there. But on the other hand, can you help me with this 1%? I don't know how we got there. But Honestly, that's, that's I find this, I I find this kind of line of thinking to be very fascinating because, um, because it's so hard to quantify, I think the pursuit of it can be frustrating. And totally. so I think... I mean, I don't, we're going to put that aside for just a second. I'll come back to it. I totally agree with you. But I also find for the average person, the pursuit of excellence is a more measurable thing. And, and it can also lead towards like the realization that as you become more excellent at what you do, your options of musical storytelling also grow too, right? Like the more control you have in all different registers and dynamics. So I think to some degree, while you're learning and listening and exploring and experimenting or whatever in terms of musicality, like having the... Because I think what can happen sometimes is like we can say we all got to play musically and like like the the pursuit of like refinement and perfection can become like, a, well, we'll just maybe do that, right? Because music is the most important thing. But I think perfection is not a real thing, right? But excellence certainly is. <coughs> and so I think the yeah. pursuit of that is a very valid thing to do um, while you're sort of, I guess in my own experience, let's, I feel like I'm growing to a place of excellence in my playing where it's exactly the same thing. It's like, I can play most things. And now I'm like, am I doing anything? Am I saying anything? But like, I feel like I was trying to have those conversations with myself 10 years ago. I just couldn't do it nearly as effectively as I can do now, right? Because I have so much more consistent, consistency uh, baked into what I do. Yeah, I, I try to be mindful of that as a teacher because I, I think you can find, you know, a, a student who maybe focuses so much on an artful impact and less so on the, you know, the daily needs of an instrument maybe is a way to kind of put that, you know, and then it's it's hard to to emote through, like I was saying with the Wi-Fi thing, like through that bad connection, it's hard to emote through, even if you have the most compelling story, you know, if you're not pushing the right button down, that's going to become the story. But yeah, it, it, for, it, it is a challenge. Because I think what, what you get is this pendulum swing sometimes. At least, at least for me, right? When I chase, because I do, I, even now as, as a player, 
And, and part of it's because of my life, which I really wouldn't change. I love that my, my practice kind of ebbs and flows. When I have an important project, I do a ton of it. And then when administrative things come on, you know, it's more of a daily maintenance. Um, and so it keeps me more interested in everything I'm doing. Like I have such variety. I think it keeps everything fresh. But when I'm really working it, sometimes I get real frustrated. I'm like, I'm going to get this, this thing, whatever it is. Say it's a, just a challenging phrase or a, you know, some technical thing. And I'm not happy with it. And I chase it and chase it and chase it. And then I become so amusical when I get it that now that frustration just ends up on the other side of this pendulum. Mm. And, and I try to find a way to bring that in with my students. And what I, what I bring them to hear is it's interesting to, to try to hear. And we have great string, uh, string teaching going on at, at Texas Tech for young people. There's a Suzuki program on, on Saturday mornings, but there's also a string project. Um, which brings in you know younger students from the public schools to work. Um, and it's fun to hear what's going on in those classrooms because you hear terrible technique, right? They're brand, they're brand new. And it's a string instrument where that technique is, is really, you know, that's what the sound is. And so you hear some scratchy things, but every once in a while, there's somebody with, with not great technique because they're a beginner and, and they maybe play something and somehow put that room in that pause that we're used to from great performer. Yeah. When they're about they're about to play Twinkle Twinkle, and there's just presence, and then a sound that is a scratchy eight year old on a cello, that's half size, and you recognize it simultaneously as not a great sound on an instrument, and I guess you give credit to it because it's a young player and a, and a young student, but still somehow that musical artistry and compellingness comes through, and I I just wish I could. If I could describe what that is, how that eight-year-old found it, and how it transcended, you know, and, and I think that whoever, you know, that student, you know, t- add 10 years to that, you know, that's, it's still going to be there, you hope, right? But what, what is that secret sauce? Because that's what, nobody can talk yeah, about it. No one knows I, what it is. Personally, I think it's pretty heavily related to the growth mindset thing, fixed mindset thing, right? Because when you read that book, it's clear that like, like it can be a learned thing, but even kids like sh- present with growth mindsets or fixed mindsets, you know. And kind of what's interesting to me is like my my son is pra- he's learning violin. He's been doing it for about a year now, and for him, it's like it's like a it's like such a frustrating experience because he like yeah. So you're for, you're familiar with this? Yeah, stuff. yeah. So he it's I mean, but sometimes he can sound good, and other times, but like he's got a good ear. So like when he knows his intonation is a little out, but he's like not even remotely disciplined about anything because he's nine, you know. And so it's interesting to see because like there's you can already see how like frustration and like sort of like this is hard and I don't like this is like already starting to work its way into like the way he perceives a musical instrument at nine. Right. But if there's a child who maybe just, I don't want to say naturally, but maybe has a proclivity to have more of a growth mindset, like they may be more willing to just sit in this part that like sucks and not have such an opinion about what it does or doesn't mean. I think what, what maybe, maybe that is, is fun. And, you know, you can have fun with things you're bad at. Like, I, I'm really bad at Wordle. And it's no fun anymore because it was this thing that I knew about before everybody else did. 
And like, I would be happy when I got the word, like when I figured it out through that elimination. And like, do you, I, won't, you done I, this I now yet? won't ever do it. But you get six yeah, I, tries. I've actually kind of figured out what it is based on how many people keep talking about it. <laughs> Yeah, so I was happy, like, oh, it took me six tries, but I got the word, and it was a complicated word that I don't use, and it's awesome. And now everybody's doing it, and my whole family in the morning, you know, it's a competition now. So it's like no more, it's not fun anymore. It's not interesting anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. Um, but that, that I think, is a key thing, too, that uh, brings about some of this musical quality. Because I've been thinking about this a lot, and I think that's one of the, the aspects. Fun. You know, the watching... Um, you know, they're thinking trumpet, right? The if you had to choose a, a trump, there's a lot of great trumpet studios. I think Baylor is one of the the, the strongest ones, if not the strongest one, um, particularly with their competition performances. But when you watch their ensemble, it's it's sort of like eight people on stage, and they're all just having a blast, and it's infectious to that audience. But it also creeps into their music making. Their music making actually, you know, it makes me have fun when I'm listening to it, and they're having fun. And I think it transcends technique to a new level too. So I think that's that's part of it. And I think when kids who are struggling with the brand newness of an instrument and it's not it's not sounding the way a, a full-sized human could make it sound, but there's a spark in them that thinks it's really cool and really fun. They are the ones that keep going, but they're the ones that transcend all of that and make something compelling even though they're a 9-year-old on the violin who's you know just trying to practice cuz they think they need yeah. to, you know. Yeah, I mean there's no way you could argue with that, you know? I just think, like, it leaves a lot of people out who, like, for whatever reason, it's not fun, right? Well, and then, well right. That, and that's the story of maybe many orchestras. Yeah. Right? You know, it, it, yeah. it's not so fun. I mean, I'm, I'm really trying to... Kathleen's done a lot of look into flow state, which is like basically that that space where, like, everything is yeah. easy, right? That, that's That's such a, like, simplistic way of saying it, but... Part of it is like there's a level of enjoyment in the task because you've almost like gamified it, right? You're like, I'm going to try to do this thing that's like within my capability and I'm going to... So it's like with a, like a musical phrase, it's like you're going to go one phrase at a time and you're like, I'm going to try to like really demonstrate the peak of this phrase. And then you'll be like, oh, I feel like I did it. That's awesome. You know, you're like sort of bringing the scope of what you're trying to accomplish to a much smaller point of view. And I think that can really help enjoyment when it's less about like here's here's a way that I would think about describing this sometimes when you get to an audition you have like eight excerpts you got to play in a list and the last one is like magnificat right and you that first thing we're all going to think is like oh <laughs> yeah. no how am i going to get through this so in the gym you would know all about this uh, it we I, I'm fine if you want to link to our. I, that popped well, up the other my day on my on my like um in memories. <laughs> it's such, it's yes, hilarious. Anyway, um, in the yeah it's in the gym, this happens is. all the time, right? Like, let's say you have a uh you have a squat day and you have four sets of eight reps, and the and like the first like the very first rep you squat feels kind of heavy, and you're just like. I'm gonna die. Like, how am I gonna get through this? This is impossible. (laughs) All all of the prevailing wisdom is take it one set at a time, one rep at a time. You're not trying to like complete the whole thing. You're just trying to get through the next rep. And so the equivalent to that for me would be 
take it one excerpt at a time, one phrase at a time. It's like you're not trying to you're not trying to worry about that thing way over there. And I think when you break it down into these more manageable parts, the overwhelming nature of like trying to manage all of your playing for a length a huge length of time boils down into rather I'm just going to have fun doing this phrase, you know. So I wonder if that's part of like just the perspective you bring to what you're doing too. Yeah, I mean mindset is is everything. Um, it just always is. And that flow state is something I chase. Uh, we, we did some strategic planning. And, and, and you know, it, for those of you, if you've never done a strategic plan for an organization, I mean, I, it's really, it's, it's weird. It's, it's challenging because you're trying to take, you know, two sentences and make the entire, uh, an entire organization fit, you know, or see themselves in, the, in these things. Um, and that, as we were doing it, I started thinking, okay, well, what is like my, what's, what's my strategic plan? You know, what's my vision? Yeah, what's your statement? mission statement? Yeah. Like, what am I doing? Um, which for me is hard because I'm, I'm totally lost all the time because there's just so much going on for me. Um, and I do, I think just too much with everything. And I try to be kind of, I don't know. I should say no to more things maybe, <clears throat> but as I was thinking about, I was like, okay, so why do I play? Like, why am I a musician? And what I've come up with is that it's the, it's the closest thing. And I think this is flow state, what I'm really getting at, but it's the closest thing um, to escaping the human, you know, sort of construct and prison of time. Because I think when, when I'm performing and when, and it hasn't happened much because of the pandemic, but when, you know, the most performing I do are usually recital performances you know, all wherever they happen to be. I don't know what's going on. Like I, I play and this happened the most, no, the first time this happened to me was my interview actually at Texas Tech. I played this 40 minute recital, maybe, maybe it was a half hour, five pieces on it. And I turned to the pianist after like the third piece. And I was like, which, which ones have we played already? I don't know where, like, I don't know where I am. And it was a total thing, but that it, like everything for me kind of disappears um, my ability to understand time and and how it's flowing, but also to to think because I think my my brain is is thinking about maybe three or four things at once. But when I'm performing, it's thinking about nothing. I really I really go away. Uh, but then there's this aspect of trying to perform from memory, and I, I want to hear from you about this because you memorize everything like it's so easy. Um, that made me real mad when you were visiting. So I'm we're just hanging out in my office, and Ryan's like, "Oh, let's play the Artunian." And then Becca came in as a, you know, and she's a pianist, so she pulls out the part and they're just like, they play through the whole thing. And then she's like, oh, what about the Tomasi? And so she's got all this favorite music that we would play together that would take me months to just find the part to play. <laughs> and Ryan's just like, well, from memory, here's Tomasi, here's Triptych, here's Joel Ave. And they're pretty good too. I think <laughs> yeah, I still that have was, that. I remember <laughs> being a little bit more than a disaster than pretty good, but <laughs> I think I still have that file somewhere of the recording. But anyway, for me, when I perform from memory and I've got this construct of a piece of music, like say it, say it's any concerto, like pick a concerto. Gregson. I don't know. The Gregson. Then I, I can, if I really memorize it and I'm really ready to go and really can perform it, I can look at it in my mind and sort of see the entirety of it somehow out of time and in real time and access it like it's a three-dimensional object. And I just think that's so cool. And I think that's why I'm drawn to being a musician because it's, it's, I escaped sort of the reality 
not in like this, like, oh, I escaped the reality of my life. Like, I don't like bills. So when I'm on stage, I'm not thinking about bills. <laughs> I'm not thinking about bills. But instead, it's like, no, it's like the human experience becomes transcendent for me when I'm performing because I escape it. And I can, you know, do this weird time travel thing on stage. And then, you know, I zoom back in and, and go out and have a beer or whatever. Um, but it, it's, it's really cool. Mm. And I think everyone should try it. <laughs> this is going to be your yeah. weirdest episode because I don't just think anything. Ha- everyone should just try having a trans, uh, transcendental experience. Yeah. I, I have to plug this computer in or we will get disconnected. Yeah, so fire it up. On one second. I'll even just continue talking and you won't even know that I'm talking because your hey, headphones yeah. are off. Uh, Andy asked about memorization. Um, I feel memorization is something that I don't want to say if I had a natural ability for, but memorization is just something that I've practiced a lot. So when I was in high school, I played in a ska band called the Totally Awesome Fun Band. That's a true story. We changed our name to Bottle Rocket for a while. And then we went back to the Totally Awesome Fun Band. And when we were, when we, you know, band practice is like, we didn't understand anything about rehearsal. Band practice, just let's just play our songs over and over and over and over again. And so the way we would do it is our guitar player, my, my good friend Blake, would write like a horn line on the guitar. And then I would get the saxophone player, my, my friend Taylor, and a trombone player, my friend Jordan. And we would, I would teach them like either the line or harmonies to the line, right? And then we would just, we would rehearse and do everything memorized like the whole time, right? So I had like this weird, like I have a lot of experience playing memorized from being in my ska band from when I was in high school. And then, you know, I think the secret to memorization. No one, I don't feel like anyone's going to like this, but I think it's just like a lot of repetition, you know? Like it's a lot of just like, yeah. I mean, you got to get it so that you're playing it relatively consistently from time to time. And then, yeah, it's like kind of what you described. It's, it's kind of interesting because you've done enough repetition that like it's sort of ingrained in your quote muscle memory or your neurological pathways or there's myelination that's happened. So it's ingrained, but, and then it's like, you're, you got to just hear the, it's like you're playing along with the recording in your head essentially. And like, because you know it, your fingers just like do it. You know what I mean? There is an element of like, you've just, you've sort of repped it enough, but it's kind of fascinating because I've had experiences where I've played something memorized I remember this. I did Quiet City in Indianapolis, same Quiet City where everything crashed and burned. But it was the morning of that Friday morning. And <laughs> I remember we were playing and the English horn was just there. And I was just like lost in space, just enjoying Quiet City. You know, it's that very like open, you know, aesthetic. And then I started being like, man, something, it like sounds like something's missing right now. You know? And I was like, oh, it's me. I should be playing right now. It's like that recording was still going and I was like, something's missing, you know? Like when you get it, when it becomes enough of a part of you, whether you've listened enough or you've sort of repped it enough times that it's part of you, it's like, to me, there's almost like a compulsion to like, it's time for me to come in and you just sort of do it. You just have to, there's a level of trust involved that like, you know, I feel like that's one of the biggest barriers is people just may at no point ever trust that they actually know it to let themselves just like play along with the recording in their head. Well, and performing from memory is really 
risky because if, if you know if something goes wrong i think the you're, we're at least in my experience i'm relying on that kind of flow state mm-hmm. to make it work and if something like isn't that the whole point like you you didn't take any risks like isn't that the point is like it's a risk to because i find when memory when performing memorized i'm way more in the music because there's one less barrier of the actual printed music to stop me from thinking musically well i need to be better about that because i I, i'm doing this thing right now because i could i've been postponing this recital that i'm trying to do and i keep postponing because i want to i want to do the whole thing from memory it's like this goal that I have. And instead of, instead of <laughs> the problem is I have the ability to change when I do it. So I just keep kind of putting it off. Um, but I think I need to remember, um, it, may, it may be all of us sort of very, very lucky, fortunate people who have these tenured teaching jobs that like tenure is such a protective thing. We can take those risks. Yeah, You know, like nothing, nothing bad will happen to me if I walk on stage and Go, oh, I, I was going to do this from memory. I actually don't remember any of it. I'm so sorry. Yeah. You know, and, and, and the concert. <laughs> um, you know, no one's, and, and, and no one's going to even write a review about that. You know, nothing will yeah. live forever. Um, I won't lose a job the way it would have been, you know, the first six years of an academic job. Yeah. Something like that could have been detrimental. Um, but even, even the freeness to try that kind of freaks me out. And even like my addiction to doing it and wanting to perform from memory won't make mm. me want to do it because there's that what if of yeah that's what charlie guy would say about up. bud like bud would never do th- something memorized he didn't want to and when somebody asked him they say why not he goes well what if i forget it's like a pretty good answer you know like what if i forget but like you i don't know there's it's not just like even a freedom in like your music making it's like a freedom of like things don't have to be exactly the way i need them to be if that makes sense. I did a recital uh, uh, at Jesse Cook's school in Central Florida in uh, October or September. Yeah. And I played um, Rustiques, uh, Cascades, The Peskin, Norma. And then I played with Jesse, the Vivaldi. And I played the first, I played all of the solo trumpet stuff memorized. I've been playing the Peskin for like 10 years, you know, it's like a piece, you know, I make a lot of these pieces. I've just casually, you know, whatever, but the Vivaldi, I haven't done a ton. I've done it enough to feel comfortable with it. And I, I like practice with music on my computer. And so I did not print the music off before I went to Florida. (laughs) So we got there and I was like, Oh no, what do I do? And Jesse had his part or like a score, but like the score would have been weird. And I was like, all right, why don't you just put your part next to me? And I literally watched his part and then played mine. Right. So all I needed to know was when I, when do I need to come in? And then I know like how the licks go. You know what I'm saying? It even gave like this freedom of like, we don't like, you just are like, oh, we'll just do this kind of thing. And then I feel confident that I can. And everything went off without a hitch, right? So I sort of live a lot of my life, my performing life on that like precipice of things could very much well go wrong. Um, but I think that's partially why I, I can do it too, right? <laughs> I just practice it. Yeah, you do. I my, Some of my favorite stories about you are those death-defying moments of, I mean, you're, and I, I think they've certainly come up a bit on this program. 
Um, but you're even like you're Ellsworth Smith when someone was like, oh yeah, memorization is yeah. required for this, which it wasn't. And you were like, oh, okay. Yeah. And then you that just was walk the out on stage and do yeah. it. And then, and then you win. Or, or your, your concerto competition story from, from yeah, the last Yeah, we'll save that one. Yeah, I won't. That's a good, that's a good episode <laughs> yeah. 200 right there. One of my favorite stories is in when I when I came to visit you, and I couldn't turn that page in the Gregson. I wasn't playing memorized, but I couldn't turn my page fast enough for the Gregson. And then I played like an entire page memorized, and then turned the page. And I remember you were being like, "That's a good thing to be able to tell my students. Like you're not truly prepared until you cannot turn a page and still be all right." Yeah, I like that. You did that whole recital by yeah. request, basically. You asked Bob Luther. What would you like to hear in a trumpet recital? And it wasn't that much time from when he made the request to when you performed it. It couldn't have been more, more than, than that, I'm sure. But I don't know. I don't know how you feel about this. I have such a limited like scope of pieces that I know, right? That like at a certain point, it's like more fun slash more challenging to be like just somebody else pick it, you know? Like, instead of me being like, what do I think would show me yeah. off? Or what's like this piece that I haven't played ever? You know, I just feel like I'll just play anything. Because, you know, you don't know what's... I never. I didn't know the Gregson before Bob programmed it for me. And now I I, I might play it next year with the orchestra. I don't know. I've, I've requested to do it. Because I got asked if I wanted to play on Masterworks. So, like, we might go from I don't know it. Bob introduced me to, like, possible Masterworks. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I... I struggle with programming actually because I, I always I want to play things I love and so I fall in love with a piece and then I program it before I think about what's yeah, possible yeah. and then and you know, that's how I end up playing like three French concerti yeah. on a recital and wondering why like oh, why can't I get through this <laughs> it's like oh maybe maybe I should have thought about that a little bit um, but yeah I think I'm with you like it's not it, it's more about what you know, like I don't necessarily need a great idea. I just kind of want to love when I'm like, just have some fun, play some some things, and worry about whether or not it's possible after the concert. Yeah. I mean, that used to be my metric. I mean, when I first moved to Alabama, before I developed all this gold method stuff, like that was my metric for like, have I gotten better? Is I'll just program an impossible recital and see if I can get through it. Like I played a recital, a chamber music recital here where I started with the Brandenburg and then played like... Ooh. So someone's... One of my students... Yeah, to I do that. started yeah. with the Brandenburg we'll and then played like the Hindemith trumpet and bassoon piece. And then I played pastoral for trumpet and trombone by Owazen. And then I played Cascades. And then I played like one other piece. And it was like, can I do this? I don't know. Like, will I fail? Maybe let's, let's find out, you know, like that was the only way I had to like try to push my limits and it was not in like a logical or, method, you know, um, methodical way. It was just like, let's yeah. just throw paint at the wall and see what happens. Well, I, that's what I was doing as a student too. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about possibility. I was just chasing the people who I w mm. wanted to emulate. And I was like, cause like, and if you, if people don't know of Terry Everson's playing as a soloist, um, shame on you for not knowing of him as a soloist, but you gotta you gotta check him out because I think there's there's literally nothing he can't do. And studying with him was a challenge because I went well he could play this recital of I think I, I tried and it 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 went okay, but I played the Shane's 
the Tomasi and the Desert Clone, the same recital. I thought <laughs> Terry would do it. <laughs> I don't, and, and, and I, that was, and I think it helped me to kind of chase that sort of, you know, if you put a limit on it, then you're going to end up landing somewhere limited, maybe. Yeah. Um, I'd take a, now I feel like I have a slightly different approach, which is like, let's assume that's possible, but like, what if like we waited till we were capable of sounding great? <laughs> yeah, I'm totally fine sounding no. bad. No, that's not true. <laughs> yeah, it's just interesting to see but, like, if you look back to some of those times, and this is an interesting d- d- point too. Like I think about, I got asked one time, like that I think I got interviewed, Nick and I got interviewed for ITG something or other. He said, what's a memorable performance for you? And it's funny because all of the memorable performances for me are when something went completely wrong. Like, very, I mean, there's a few <laughs> that are like, oh, everything was so amazing. I was so in it. You know, I can think of a few, but I can also much more clearly remember things where like something went sideways and you're like, what is going to happen right now? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. that flow state thing. Because with the great ones, you're not really, you know, you're firing on all cylinders, so you're not remembering it really well. Because I have great performances that I think I remember, but I don't really remember them. I just know someone told me it was great, so I have the recording still. And so I can listen back and go, cool. But I don't really physically remember being there. Um, or, or I do this thing, my, this every performance that, is, that goes well, I remember and I always have the thought that you know, I start it and I'm on, something happens on the first page and then it occurs to me, okay, cool. The next conscious moment I'll be aware of is the last page. And then I get to the last page, and I'm like, <laughs> "Wow, <laughs> here we are. We're on the last page." Uh, I love it. I don't. We have talked about so many like esoteric, difficult things. Um, I hope people don't think that's all I'm doing, but it kind of is. I mean, I talk about it a lot as a teacher, just trying to get students to be thinking in that direction all the time. Um, you know, even with a even with a Clark study, I do that all the time when students play. Clark 2 in F major, like super easy. I'm like, why do I want, why, I don't care. <laughs> Play that and make me care, you know, and try to get them to, to do something. I mean, part of it's just me being a kind of, I don't know, the, the kind of teacher that's just always making someone try to push a mm-hmm. little further. But I think those musical qualities are just so, so important. Because I wonder what you think about, like, can, you, can you become a technician to the point where you feel like everything's there and then all of a sudden shift and add artistry. Or do they really need, do they need to be part of the package as you go? You want my honest opinion? I do. Cause I bet mine's. Different. I think they, I think you I'm can fight. Yes. I, to answer your question. Yes. I think that's possible. I don't necessarily think it's optimal, but I think it's possible. I think it's very difficult for someone as they progress in their technique to not be like, Okay. Like, unless they just are disconnected and you actually have to be like, yo, like, let's listen to some recordings. Let's, like, figure out what inspires you. <laughs> I think a lot of... My my take on even why I've... I got into a discussion with a, a guy about audition preparation and I was talking to him about this, how I do it for the gold method thing, right? And he was just like, well, that all sounds really great. But, like, one of the things I would want is, like, musical flexibility, Right. Like the ability to play it one way and if they asked me to do it. And so the the idea was, well, I feel like I need to be able to prepare all these different musical ways or thinking about it. You know, I want to be prepared. And I was like, that's awesome. But I bet you the majority of people 
aren't advancing because they didn't play on a v wide variety about musically enough. I think most people are struggling with just being able to represent themselves accurately to the way that they prepared. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, certainly those first few rounds, right? I think yeah, that last right. round, it's, it's maybe different. But to get from prelim to semis, sure. But even then, I don't know. My, my, I mean, at least my journey was all like, I don't want to listen to you because you're boring. Sure. But I mean, Not, I, I don't want to listen to you because you're missing. Through, I mean, I'm still, I, I miss playing. Yeah. Also. I mean, I just would try to, I would try to frame it within the, yeah, I, I don't, I, I, there's no way I can disagree with what you're saying, right? I'm not trying to present that I disagree that the, the musicianship should be divorced. My, I guess my, my perspective is that. If you develop a level of consistency where you can make the same sound twice in a row at minimum, I think it becomes easier to start to like explore and experiment in terms of musicality because you're not like yeah. introducing two different things from a production level. That's hard to tell like, well, did that sound better because I just played it better or did that sound better because it was more musical? Like the more consistency, the more you can test finer details in your playing, I think. Yeah. See, I, I just think they it's essential for it to be part of the package all the time. Um, and maybe part of that's just in response to what I'm I'm seeing all the time as a teacher. I mean, there's students, it's hard to be a college student, you know, and that that burnout factor. Um, and I especially teaching at a university, like my my college experience was great. I could go up to a liberal arts professor and say, Hey, I've got a recital 10 years from now. I really would like to focus on it. Is it okay if I don't do these readings? And they're like, <laughs> sure. No problem. Please be great on stage. And they would give us all the leeway possible. I have students in these math classes taught by, you know, super geniuses who expect math perfection all the time. And, you know, they're they're up all night studying for that and then coming to their lesson feeling like, oh, I, I, uh. and so there's this kind of burnout thing that happens. But I, and I think keeping some of the musical qualities part of the discussion all the time it allows me to remind students, okay, what, what sparked yeah. you to want to be a musician and what, what's really this driving kind of, kind of factor. Um, but then again, I'm not, I'm not working, you know, it's not, it's not a, a group of people who are chasing the highest level all the time. You know, it, certainly we get there, but it's not, I think it, it probably changes when you're in the final round of major orchestras than it is when you're, in the final round of the Texas yeah, exceeding. I'm also not trying to present the but, idea. I'm sure I guess I could be misinterpreted this way. So for clarity's sake, I'm not trying to present the idea that there should be like a period of time where you never talk about music, right? Like Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I didn't and but I didn't to me, take it that way, but I just think that like you can design certain things in your routine where it's like for right now, I'm gonna be thinking about how I'm producing sound for right now. I'm going to be thinking about the musical line I'm trying to do. I also think at which tempo you are playing things will dictate more of a production emphasis or more of a musical emphasis. I would just say slower yeah. tempos. It's easier to kind of dig into the nitty gritty of production because it's like far enough away from the actual music that I don't think you're ingraining bad musical habits by focusing on production-related yeah. stuff. See, but I think even at that level, when you're talking about just producing a sound, what do we always say? We call it a beautiful sound. So I think even at the most basic sound production 
whatever your concept is. We are talking about art because a beautiful trumpet sound is pieces of art, right? And great technique too, like the, the perfect articulation. It's like a perfect sculpture. You know, it's, it's Michelangelo. That's maybe too much. But even, even at that moment, like these little bits of things, like the little bits of color you can create um, as you're exploring how to just articulate, all of that can have this art focus of, of beauty. You know, and, and I think that's, that's what I try to keep in mind, at least with my students, is that we're, we're chasing this kind of beautiful thing. And it, it's, maybe it's, it's too subjective sometimes. Yeah. Because um, I, I do get, I mean, sometimes students get real confused. So like, so why, why was that not a beautiful sound? Yeah, like, like how do you was? quantify a beautiful I'm not saying try- that you shouldn't call it a beautiful sound, but how do we quantify that? Right. And then to, you know, and then you, you just keep experimenting and go, well, actually, to some extent, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, it's a beautiful sound when you feel as a performer like it's beautiful. Step maybe step one. And then it's a beautiful sound step two when other people start thinking it's beautiful. And then you kind of have this cosmic agreement that is negotiated throughout a career, right? Like orchestras sound so different now than they did 50 years ago. Um, you know, you couldn't, and that, this would be fun if we could. I wish we had excerpt recordings of, of, of the greats from the, you know, the 50s and 60s and like play, send them as like an audition yeah. tape now, you know, and like our heroes wouldn't even yeah. make it because it, it might, it would have too much of something or not enough of something. And so I think it's okay that things change and art is a, is a total negotiation between society and performer and it moves forward and backwards and it, it's constantly in flux. But for me, I don't survive unless I'm thinking about it. Like if I'm not engaged with that idea all the time, I find it super boring. And I don't, I don't want to do anything. And I think for my students too, getting them engaged in those kind of, the possibility of that, I hope, maybe I'm wrong, <laughs> I hope it brings them to the practice room with enough curiosity yeah. to kind of keep going. Um, There's a challenge to keep doing what we're doing. It just did. Yeah, my take, I, I again, like, I really resonate with everything you're saying. You know, like, I think... Here's something. I'll just introduce this idea. See what you think of it. If I think that what you're talking about, that it's always in, like it's always intertwined at all times. One thing that I think cause like causes us to feel this way um, that we could we could think about is what if we put somebody on like a ten year trajectory, right? We said that from right now. I don't care anything about how you sound and what you're doing until 10 years from now, or we will reevaluate if we have been successful with our efforts. And let's say for one entire year, all we talked about was how to produce sound on the trumpet. You can call it a beautiful sound, but we talked about the mechanics of the trumpet and we got everything in its place. And then for nine years, you explored music making through like all of the greats and you dissected it and you absorbed it so that like that first year was establishing this base, right? That you would hold and keep for the next nine years. And at 10, at that year 10, when we're like, were we successful? They're like the greatest music, hypothetically the greatest musician that ever lived. Would we go back and say it was acceptable to like really hyper focus on technique for a year? Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe, you know, I wish. So yeah, it probably circles more than that. Because I mean, if I'm being honest, even in the practice room, when I'm, you know, trying to to get something to work, 
what, whatever technique I'm using to perfect technique, you know, am I, am I thinking of the poetry of the, of the moment? Maybe not, but I just try to get there of course. as quick as I can. But you remind me of this, we do this experiment in studio class, like every few years, um, where I take something really kind of obnoxiously hard, like a, like a Paganini thing, um, that nobody knows everybody's sight reading. And then I have a student and we, we pick what the performance tempo ought to be. I want to, I want to pick your brain about this. Cause I know you're, um, cause I've seen like, I like your early, um, your early gold method, right? The early mm-hmm. spreadsheets and stuff that you've shared. Um, and so what we do is we just take two guinea pig students and this is already not scientific because they're two different mm-hmm. students. So they might both need different things, but one of them plays the thing at half speed, you know, the entire time, just half tempo, boom, boom, boom. And they never go beyond that. And then the other student does this incremental increase thing. Not really, no nuance to it. It's just, we're going to add four beats per minute, every take and, and try to get closer to the tempo. And then after some time we stop and, you know, nobody in the audience, like nobody knows who did what. And then we have them play and, I mean, we all, and then the result is usually, I mean, they're both could use more work, right? But the, the person who spent all the time in half tempo has a better command of it than the person who went in this incremental approach. And I'm not, I would never really push a student to be like, okay, let's just mm-hmm. do half tempo. Like for, you know, I know you got a recital in a month. We're going to be at half tempo for 29 days. And then on day 30, you're going to play it. Like, that's not what I'm getting at. But there is something to that mm-hmm. sort of deepness of, of that intent and that slow process. Yeah. That's and why I, I'm a really that. big fan of this. The way the thing I've been using for a long time is this 4% increase because at the beginning it's slower. So you're staying at slower tempos for longer than if you did like a four beat per minute increase yeah. and then it gets exponential. So when you hit the back end of it and you're, and you're sort of like, I've done some of that. You basically spend like, if you start at half tempo, you'll spend a week between like 50 and like 62%. And then you'll go from like 62 to 100. You know what I mean? Because like it's exponential. And so you end up spending a proportionately more amount of repetitions in that slower phase. But it's... Yeah, so I see this. The gold oh, method yeah. has really evolved. Considerably. Yeah, considerably. Since the yeah. early stage. I just didn't give up trying to figure it out. Because get- people would say like, this sucks. I don't want to do this. So I was like, all right, I'm going to keep trying to figure out what somebody <laughs> might want to do. And... um I mean, yeah, it's it's a lot different now. The way I do it now, if like if it was for a piece, like a recital or a piece of music, I program this 4% progression. The sections start appropriate to the difficulty of the section. So easier sections won't start quite as slow as hard sections. They all work up on this 4% progression yeah. so that you're, you're at minimum, you're still getting like a few like, all right, like basically you're trying to emphasize learning what's going on before you're worried about speeding things up. But at the same time, Sometimes if we spend too long playing slow, like you're describing, we like lose touch with like what it is we're trying to accomplish, right? Like the music of it, because sometimes we just need to kind yeah. of play through it. So basically I've learned these progressions to get you from like half tempo to full tempo in two weeks. And then, so you get up to full tempo in two weeks and then you would maybe run it a few times and say like, okay, how does that feel? Make some notes. And then you just run the program again, except for now you have all this information you learned from the first time to infuse in the process the second time. And you're sort of like, let's say the first time through yeah. you refined it 90% of the way. 
Well, you're going to start the second process at like 90% refinement and you might get to like 96% refinement. You know what I mean? It's a lot different. Yeah. No, practice, the, the, like the art of practices. So. Yeah, I'm trying to understand interesting. it. Interesting. That's interesting to me. And I'm trying to understand how to, you know, some of the things I talk about, right? That all that flow state stuff and thinking artfully. How can you really bring that into the practice room? Other and, and other than making the stage your practice room, right? Like I think the people that have the easiest time with this are yeah, the yeah. people who get to perform yeah. all the time. You know, they they can experiment with that. Um, you know, but when students have their one recital at the end, and maybe two concerts a semester, you know, and maybe at some, you know, there's there's six students in a section, so they're not always playing the solo. So that's you know, four concerts a year, but three of them are not the most emotionally invested playing you're playing third trumpet and yeah. it's not you know you're not as nervous as you would would be if, if nerves are a metric of um you know how much you, you really want you know or need to care about something that was a, I, that's a terrible way to put that. i know what you but, mean <laughs> like are you using nerves as a metric like i'm very nervous versus i'm not nervous like did i do better yeah yeah so like, i'm not yeah, nervous yeah. therefore i don't care um because i've definitely had great moments you know, like there's really awesome moments where i've somehow been sort of given the gift of yeah. no nerves for some reason, and yeah, that was really great. So, I have sort of two two diverging thoughts. The first one is I think this can actually be one of the values of social media. I think there's a lot of social media that's terrible for people, myself included. I'm trying to sort of like do less and be less obsessed with it. But if you are sort of like committed to, I'm going to spend two weeks working on this etude and then I'm going to record it in one shot and I'm going to put it on social media for people to listen to, that can, pro <laughs> that can probably sort of give you that stress of like a performance that people aren't necessarily listening to it now, but they might hear it or you could do a live or something like that if you wanted to do that. But I mean, that's what like sort of my YouTube, my beach stuff I'm doing on YouTube. That's what that's like trying to simulate. I, I still think it's awesome that you, you were doing that and then the pandemic happened and everyone started doing that. Oh, like this yeah. cutting edge. I just wanted a way to push myself, you know? Like, like Biche tunes are hard. Like Playing an, like articulate music is difficult for me. And so I was like, I'm going to use this to do it. I'm going to try to learn. And then eventually it became like, I'm going to do this the very first yeah. take. That's it. Because I, I used to watch, you know, speedrunners playing video games and stuff, right? And they would, people who got world records... It's just like that day, everything happened to go well, but they've done like possibly some, like the guy who got this world record on Ninja Gaiden. I don't know if you know that game, original NES. It's like an 11 minute <laughs> speed run, right? Like he ran it like over 10,000 times before he got this like world record, right? And then he got it. And now he's the guy with the world record. And everyone's like, oh, you're so awesome. So I started thinking about... Instead of it's like, I'm building up to this, I'm going to put out a recording, but I'm going to... Uh, today is the day I'm going to record and I'm going to like do it and then I'm going to edit it and I'm getting everything right. It's like, what if I like tried to perform or prepare it to the best of my ability, but then I just gave myself multiple chances to, uh, you know, I'll do it on the first day. And if I don't like that take, I'll do it again the next day. And if I don't like that take, I'll do it again the next day. I started to get a relationship of like how many times I have to do that before I'm actually going to play my best, which is like four or five. So now I know if I do a recital, if I get like yeah. four or five runs of everything, I'm probably going to be a lot more in the groove of everything. Yeah. So I am I have to teach a class right now. We should stop then. 
Uh, it's it's Trumpet Ensemble. They just made NTC oh, again. Congrats. Um, so we have to. I should probably. All be right. There. Very quickly, <laughs> tell people where they could find you, and then you can leave, and I'll sign off. You can find me on the internet in many places, but the the best one is probably. Uh, I guess you could. Well, don't Google me. That's a dangerous thing to do. And if you want to, I'm not going to bring it up, but don't do it. Don't Google Andrew Stetson. <laughs> unless you type, unless you type the word trumpet in there. Um, you, I feel like I, I, know, feel like I yeah, just invited yeah. people to do it. And that was the point. <laughs> I want them to do it because it's funny. Um, Cause there's somebody with my name who is pretty great at a thing. Um, and it's not, uh, do you think don't he do gets it in work. the flow state when he does his thing? <laughs> I think you have to. <laughs> I, you know I have I'm a clear about, right? image of what you're talking about. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a. You anyway, <laughs> uh, but I'm you know you can find me on the the Texas Tech website. Uh, you can read a nice bio there. Um, I've got a CD out, um, so you can find me on the iTunes and the. Spotify, all that stuff. Um, it's called Rise Above. Um, I think it's pretty great. Um, and, you know, I'm pretty, I, I love, we were, this is kind of the last thing we we're talking about, but I love social media as a sort of um, way of bringing performance into the practice. So you can see me doing weird live streams um, from really inappropriate uh, orchestra moments. Um, not, not the union orchestras because they would get mad at me, but if I'm, uh, if I can, I'll, I'll broadcast the, the back row. Um, but yeah, is that what you meant? Yeah. Like, where can they find me? They can find me at Texas well, like, Tech. Do you have an email it. that they but, should go uh, to? Like, if they were like, hey, Andy, you're awesome. Oh, yeah. I, I want to know where you get your hair done. You know what I'm saying? No. Yeah. Well, you can email me at andrew.stetson at ttu. All right. There you go. Edu. That's, uh, that's pretty awesome. And I'm, I'm at Andy Stetson on Twitter. Uh, Facebook slash Andy Stetson. I think I even got a YouTube. All right. Somewhere. Google might be the best way, but please use the word trumpet. <laughs> All right, here we go. If you need to get in touch with me for any reason, if you have any suggestions of podcast guests, you want me to do an interview on your podcast or any other reason, you can do that at that's not spit.com or that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, if you found yourself laughing or if you had any other feelings, please consider giving this a rating and review on iTunes. I'd really appreciate it. Also, don't forget to share this on social media so other people can find it as well. Andy, thank you for giving me some time right before you have to teach trumpet ensemble. This is awesome to catch back up with you a little bit. Yeah, I'm glad we did it. I hope that this is the best well, podcast you've ever done. Episode one fifty. But I wanted to. I want to congratulate you though, because this is a really cool thing, um, and I think you have so much content that I really do think people are going to start looking back at it as a resource. Um, and so I think once you've hit you've hit that, you know, you're a mm. trumpet resource now. You're, you're a pedagogical tool. I appreciate that. Thank you, man. That's I really appreciate cool. it. So congrats to you. Um, and here's to 150, 150 more. more. I appreciate it. Um, I want to thank also Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time.